Well, I'm just going to say, I think the Apostle Paul would have loved that song. I mean, if you want to talk about a guy who was on fire for the Lord, incredible. So as we return this morning uh, to our study of his letter, his first letter to the church in Corinth, I want to remind you of some things that I said at the beginning of this study. So at the beginning of the study, I said, all right, look, this letter is like a letter written to us today, and here's why. Because human nature never changes, so we talked about that. We all have the same issues, we're all molded from the same clay, and in addition to that, we live in a city exactly like their city, and so we have the same molding, shaping forces. And so therefore, we're afflicted by the same afflictions. We have the same issues, the same pathologies. And it's, so it's like Paul has written that letter to us. Okay, if you remembered that when you did your personal worship this week, you might have thought, yeah, but not here. Because this is kind of an odd chapter in the book for us. In other words, we look at what Paul says in this chapter and we're like, okay, well, you know, I mean, I kind of get how maybe that was relevant to them, but I don't see how that's relevant to us. And I say that because if you haven't done your personal worship, we come today to the issue of food offered to idols. Yeah, we don't, we just don't do that. I mean, that's just not something that we experience, but it was incredibly relevant to these guys, hugely, massively relevant. And you need to understand why. You know, like many of the major cities in the ancient world, the ancient city of Corinth was a very, very religious city. So what that means, practically speaking, is that it was littered, guys, with temples that were built to a whole pantheon, a whole host of pagan gods, Roman gods, Greek gods, and eating cultic meals at these temples was the common practice of every citizen of the city of Corinth. And in fact, it was such a regular practice of all of these people that these temples effectively served as the restaurant system for the city. So today, Fort Lauderdale, we have all kinds of restaurants. Okay, back then, Corinth, they had all kinds of temples and they each had their own special chefs and they were all in competition with one another. No kidding. It's the restaurant system. But the difference is that when we go to eat at a restaurant in Fort Lauderdale, we're not going to a cultic meal. Those meals were actually considered to be part of the worship of the pagan deity that the temple was built in honor for. And so what that means is that the meat that these guys ate at these temples was first sacrificed to this pagan deity. And then it was divided into three different portions. So portion number one went to the God and it was consumed in flame entirely, dedicated unto him. Portion number two, that was the one that was cooked up really awesome by that particular chef that was competing with all the other chefs at all the other restaurants slash temples in the city and made for the patrons. And then portion number three was a portion of the worshiper's stuff that they would push over to the side and they would put on what was called the plate of the God. So the God had his own plate. And in their theology, from their mindset, from their perspective, the God was an active, present participant in the meal. That's a little different. So for them, these meals were a religious event, but they were not just religious events. I mean, they were social events. They were business events. They were civic events. I mean, if you think about all of the different things that you and I celebrate and do at restaurants, that's what they did at these temples. So birthdays, anniversaries, graduations like we just had. All kinds of stuff, business parties, office parties, business lunches, personal dates. You know what? It's Friday. I don't want to cook. Let's go to a temple. All of those same kinds of things is exactly what they did. But now they're Christians. So now what? 
One of the things that we've seen throughout this study is that these guys sent a letter to Paul, which then provoked his letter that we're studying and returned to them. And in their letter to Paul, they raised all these different kinds of issues. And so now they're looking at their restaurant system and they're going, hey, now that I'm a believer in Jesus, like, you know, can, on Friday nights, we go get a pork sandwich. Can we still do that? When there's a birthday, we, we go out and celebrate at this particular temple restaurant, that's our favorite. When it's our anniversary, like, what can we do? Can I still have business meetings at these places? Like, what am I allowed to do and not to do? And so not surprisingly, they add that to their letter to Paul, and not surprisingly as well, there's a group within this church in Corinth that has already constructed a theological argument by which they justify their ability to go ahead and eat at these temples and to encourage everyone else to do the same thing. And I say that's not surprising because, again, human nature never changes and we all do the same kind of thing, just not with this issue, don't we? I mean, when there's something that we really want to do or not really want to do, what do we do? Do we come to the Word of God and say, all right, look, open heart, open mind, open life, You're the creator, I'm the creature. You're the redeemer, I'm the redeemed. You're the savior, I'm the saved. You're the king, I'm the servant, the subject. You're the master, I'm the slave. You're the owner, I'm the owned. So Lord, you know know, know what I'd like you to say, but, but what do you actually say? All right, here's what we do. We come to the word of God with the answer that we want it to have for us. And then we work through it and find support. Don't we? It happens. And these guys have created the theological argument too. And their theology went something like this. Look, as Christians, we know that there is no God but the true and the living God. Therefore, then, all of these idols, they're just nothing. And therefore, the worship of nothing is nothing. And therefore, all of the food offered to these idols is no different from going to the refrigerator at home and making a sandwich. It's just like any other food. This whole pantheon of gods, this whole system of... It's all a bunch of nothing. Therefore, we can freely eat. We have a right to eat at these restaurants slash temples. We are free to eat at these restaurants slash temples. And we're going to encourage everybody else to join us. And Paul comes to them and he says, all right, now first of all, in chapter 10, he's going to shut the door on this practice. In chapter 10, he's going to say, listen, there's something that your theological argument does not consider. I agree with every point of your argument, but there's another piece that you didn't think of. And for this additional reason, you're not going to be allowed to do this, which you got to kind of feel the weight of. That's a pretty sizable sacrifice. That's a life-changing kind of a deal. But here in chapter 8, he says, look, I'm going to give you a different reason that you ought not to do this. You just, you shouldn't do it. Here's the deal. Even if your theology is perfect and you are able to construct a valid, legitimate theological argument that justifies your ability to go to these temples and to engage in these cultic meals without having any effect on your soul whatsoever, because frankly, your superior theology has informed you that you have a right and a freedom to do that, and it doesn't affect you, you still shouldn't do it. And here's why, because that's just not true for everybody out of love for your Christian brothers and sisters who were raised in this city, who went to these meals from like knee-high tall, and who have engaged actively in them all of their lives as if they're actually worshiping this pagan deity of whatever temple it is that they went to. All right, look, even though they should know better, even though you've told them better, they can't do this. 
without doing damage to their soul. And more than that, they can't watch you do this without it doing damage to their soul. And more than that, they can't resist when you invite them to do this. They've done this all their life. And let's be honest, it'd be really convenient if they could. But they can't do it without it doing damage to your soul. So here's the deal. You can't do it. The bottom line on the whole passage, and it's very relevant for us, is that what we're free to do and what we have a right to do in Jesus should not govern what we do and do not do. What should govern what we do and do not do is love for our brothers and sisters. And sometimes that love for my weaker is what he's going to call them, brothers and sisters who haven't yet figured out, maybe what I've figured out, have not yet received and appropriated what I've been able to appropriate, who don't share in a subjective way at least these rights and freedoms that I have and therefore can exercise them without doing damage to their soul. Okay, sometimes my love for them requires me to sacrifice my rights and to sacrifice my freedoms and just to not do what I'm otherwise free in Jesus to do because it would harm them. So with all of that in mind, we pick up our study today in 1 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1, where Paul once again begins by quoting from this letter that they've sent him. So he says this, he says, Now concerning this topic of food that is offered to idols, we know that what? Because it's a quote from their letter. It contains part of their theological justification for continuing to eat at the temples. And here it is, that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, meaning knowledge of the fact that there's no God but the true and the living God, therefore idols are nothing, the worship of nothing is nothing, and all of this food that's being offered to idols, it's nothing. It's meaningless. It's a ham sandwich at home. There's no difference. Okay, he says, all of us possess knowledge, but... But before we get to your weaker brother for a second, let's consider the effect of the knowledge that you possess on you, he says, to these stronger people. He goes, because I'm looking at the way you've been treating your brothers and sisters, how you're walking over them on your way to the temple. And here's what that tells me about the effect of this knowledge on your soul. And he gives it to us very plainly. He says, knowledge huffs up. In other words, this knowledge has made you prideful, he's saying to them. This knowledge has made you to feel superior to these other people who, for whatever reason, can't seem to get their heads or more likely their hearts around this theological position that would allow them to do this freely without harming their souls. And instead of moving you toward them in self-sacrificing love, which is what good theology ought to do, what it's moved you instead to do is to trample over them. And I'm going to tell you plainly, That is not an unusual event. Believe it or not, I think, just to speak generally for a second, the study of theology often does that. It's kind of stunning, right? The study of theology, particularly for those of us who are just beginning the study of theology and whose minds are being blown by all of these revelations, instead of making us humble, which is what it ought to make us, oftentimes makes us proud. Instead of making us selfless, which is what it ought to make us, oftentimes makes us selfish. Instead of creating for us a platform from which to love and to serve other people, it creates for us in many cases, and without us even realizing it, before you know it, like a a hammer in your hand that you're hitting other people with. And I see it all the time, and I recognize it when I see it, because I've done it. I've done it. I remember when I started... Seminary, it was a long time ago. 
you know, kind of at the height of my spiritual arrogance when I wanted to argue with everybody about predestination because everybody wants to talk about that, you know, and everybody loves that guy. And, uh, and I wanted to argue with everybody about amillennialism because, you know, I mean, if you're not an amillennialist, come on, seriously. No, seriously. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> sort of kidding. All right. I was that guy. And I was that guy. We were attending an independent Baptist church. Wonderful, glorious, amazing place. The Lord was just working hugely through the pastor of that church, the people of that church. God used that church in my life and Beth's life to just turn us around completely. He used that church. That was the place I felt a call to ministry. That's where we got involved in studying the scriptures seriously. It's from that church that I then began to attend my Presbyterian seminary. I grew up a Presbyterian, so you know that kind of was a home for me. And I began to gain this theological education. I mean, I was like eating it up like somebody who had been starved for years for it, just in it, big time. And I pretty quickly realized that this amazing, incredible pastor of this church did not have the education that I was giving. And here's the effect that it had on me. Without realizing it, I think I started to kind of feel like, well, maybe I'm a little superior to him, at least in this sense. And I started attending church probably the way that a movie critic attends a movie, you know. Not there to enjoy it. You're not there to take it in. You're there to take notes. You're there to go, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. You forget that the Lord and the Scriptures spoke through a donkey for crying out loud. I take great solace in that personally. You forget that there is much to learn and that we can learn from anyone. That man was a great man, is a great man. So anyway, when I was a spiritually arrogant guy, he came to me, that pastor, and he said, you know, we're going to have a missions conference and it's coming up in about two weeks. And I'm wondering if you would sort of just be like the personal valet for the missionary that were flying in from some other country. And I said, yeah, sure. So what that meant, practically speaking, is on Friday afternoon, I'm at the airport with this guy's name on a sign, you know, waiting for him to come off the plane. And then I just shuttled him around all weekend long go to dinner. It would just be the two of us. I'd shuttle him back and forth from the hotel to the church. And man, I spent like a ton of time with this guy. And then finally, after he preached both services on Sunday, I dropped him off at the airport. But I mean, we would go out to dinner. We went out to dinner Friday night. We went out to dinner Saturday night. And we'd sit there and talk for hours. And then we'd drive back to the hotel and sit in the car and talk for another hour. It was amazing how much time I spent with this guy who incidentally had like zero theological education at all. None. But there was no question as to who was the superior and who was the inferior. Loves Jesus. Yeah, that, that would be him. <laughs> Full of the Spirit. Yeah, pretty, pretty sure we're clear on that one. Being used of God to make a difference for the kingdom in the whole of the world. Yeah, you know, do we even have to have this conversation? I mean, it was, it was light years of difference. So I drop him off on Sunday afternoon. I went back to the church. And then that night we had like something to sort of wrap the deal up. And, and we got to the end and, and we all sort of broke up into little prayer groups, like eight to 10 people pray in a circle. And you've prayed in a Christian circle. So you know what that's like. This guy prays and then the person next to him and the person next to him and the person next to him. And then you're counting down like there's three more and then it's me, you know, and there's no way out. You're just stuck. You know, you've got to say something. So everybody's praying for the missionaries. 
And honestly, all I could choke out in tears was, God, forgive me for being such a theologically arrogant jerk. And then I just lost it. That was it. The whole prayer. Because that's what I had become. Watch out. It happens. Easily, quickly, listen. Paul himself speaks to this point somewhere else where he talks about all of these amazing spiritual visions that God had given to him, that special revelations God had given to him. And then what does he say? To keep me humble. Why? Because our tendency is to become prideful. God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Paul comes to these guys and says, listen, you know, no God but the one God. I'm in agreement. I mean, he's going to specifically state it. He's going to say it better than they could have ever in a second. Okay, so then idols are nothing. Yeah, worship of nothing is nothing, right? Food offered to idols just like a ham sandwich. Yep. In chapter 10, he'll say, don't go to the temples to eat it. But yep. And that's for a different reason. But he's coming to them and saying, look at what you're doing to these weaker brothers and sisters. Because you're doing that, here's what I know. Your good theology has gone to your head. And it has made you prideful and not humble. Selfish and not selfless. It's become a club in your hand that you're beating other people over the head with as opposed to a platform from which to better serve them in humility and in love. Look, a good theological education is a privilege and a gift, and I commend it about as highly as I can commend absolutely anything to you. It is life-changing and hugely valuable, but only if it produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in your life, if it makes you prideful, and selfish, then as Paul is going to say here in a minute, for all that you know, you don't know anything. For all of the good theology that you've acquired, good theology in the end has completely evaded you. So Paul says again, this knowledge, guys, it's, it puffs up and it's what it's done to you is his point, but love, which is the contrary ethic and is the governing ethic that he's not suggesting. He's commanding to these people and to us, builds up, and sometimes it builds other people up through the sacrifice of your rights and freedoms that you know you have because your theology is, frankly, more sound than theirs. And then he says it. If anyone imagines that he knows something, the idea being, but the knowledge results in pride and selfishness. Well, he goes on and says, look, then he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God as evidence through a self-sacrificing love for his Christian brothers and sisters, then he is known by God. At which point now, having given us the principle, he applies it to their particular instance. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and now he quotes them again. Quote, an idol has no real existence, end quote. And that there, quote, there is no God but one God, end quote. But now he's going to say, yeah, that's true. And in a moment, he's going to totally go with that. But that's true for those who know better. Now he's going to speak to the weaker brothers and sisters and say, yeah, but they have a subjective experience that is different from that. He says, for although there may be so-called gods, he's not saying these gods exist in heaven or on earth, as indeed, he says, there are many gods and many lords. And what he means by that is in the hearts and minds and lives of these people who attribute reality to them. 
These people who can't go to one of these temples without feeling like they're actually engaging in the worship of an actual God. For them, there are many lords and there are many gods. He says, yet for us, meaning for you and I, Paul and you stronger theological people in the first Corinthian church, he says, for us, all right, well, we know better. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, as Paul says, not all possess this knowledge. But some Christians, through their former association with idols during the life that they lived before they became believers and during which they worshipped the various idols at the temples that you guys are still eating at, okay, well... When they eat the food offered at these temples, they eat it as food that was really and actually offered to an idol, even though we've taught them to know better. And even though we've taught them to know better, he's saying, when they eat at those places, their conscience being weak. And weakness is not the goal. (laughs) You want to get out of your weakness, but nevertheless, it's the reality for these folks. Okay, well... Their conscience being weak is defiled. And that's true, Paul says, even though you're right in saying that food will not commend us to God and that we're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But the simple fact that you're free to do it, that you have a right to do it, doesn't mean you should or should not do it because that's not the governing ethic. The governing ethic is, how will this affect my brothers and sisters and what does love for them require of me in terms of what I do and do not do? Take care, he says, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And you say, all right, well then, who are the weak today? Because I'm pretty sure they're not people who are, you know, bothered by eating food offered to idols and temples, because that's just not what we do. So I'm going to give you a list of different ways that we are weak. And when I say we, I might mean you. I think that's part of the problem that we have is, is, you know, we come to a passage of Scripture like this and we just assume we're not the weak, we're the strong. Yeah, who are those weak people? We're looking around like, you know, it can't possibly be us, but let me give you a list. It's non-exhaustive. There's a lot of other ones. But I would tell you that I think that we're weak when we know through our good theology of the gospel that we've been set free from having to please God and purchase His favor and merit His blessing by means of our obedience and yet continue to try to do that as evidenced by the fact that we're really irritated with God when life does not go our way because we feel like we deserve better than this. Why? Well, look at all that I do for you, Lord. Okay, what does good theology say? Oh, be so happy you don't get what you actually deserve. And that Christ has utterly and entirely and completely merited the favor, eternally so, of God for you. It's very different. But it's interesting, isn't it? I think that we're weak when we know through the gospel, that we're made infinitely valuable, that we've been adopted into the family of God as a son and daughter of God, that Jesus Christ shed his infinitely valuable life that he might purchase us as his own. And yet we still chase value and we chase significance through the opinions of other people as evidenced by the fact that when somebody criticizes us, it doesn't just sting a little, it crushes us. It's devastating. 
I think that we're weak when we know that through the gospel we are perfectly and infinitely loved and yet continue to search and try to meet our need for love through relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship, asking of these people that we go through all of these relationships with that they do something for us that actually they're not capable of doing, that only the Lord can do. I think that we're weak when we know that through the gospel we are safe and secure in both this life and in the next and yet continue to trust in wealth for our safety and security as evidenced by the fact that we ignore what the Lord has to say about generosities and we we hoard our wealth. I think that we are weak when we know that through the gospel we're to be content with the life that God has given to us and the many good gifts, but we're not content as evidenced by the fact that it's never enough. I think that we're weak when we know that through the gospel we're forgiven of all of our sins and that the whole of our past, all of it, 100% of it is not just washed clean, but it's actively in the process of being redeemed, turned around, repositioned that God might use it for good. And we continue to beat ourselves up nevertheless. I think that's weak. And it's a weakness that has a lot of us struggle with. Jesus paid it all, we sing, right? All to Him I owe. And look, I'm going to give you another example. I think that if your past, for example, took place in bars, and so let's say your issue is alcoholism, okay? And going to a bar tempts you to have a drink. And you know you shouldn't have a drink. Then don't go. Your weakness dictates that. But Paul isn't speaking to the weak in this letter. He's speaking to the strong. He's rebuking the strong. And so how does that then play out with that person? Even though I have a right, for example, I am free in Jesus to have a glass of wine, and I realize maybe that rattles your cage a little bit, but Jesus drank wine, guys, sorry. His critics criticized him for being a glutton and a drunkard. Not a fair statement, not a true and accurate statement. But it does say something. He went to parties, Jesus Even though I'm free to do that, I have a right to do that, not to get drunk, but to do that. Man, if that's going to cause my weaker brother to stumble, I don't do that. And you ought not either. Love for him or her is what dictates what we do and do not do, not what we're free to do, what we have a right to do, and what we selfishly, frankly, want to do. You know what? You need to get with the you know game here, bud. The problem is you. No, no, no. Paul's saying, no, the problem is you. (laughs) It's the strong who have the problem. We need to gently bring the weak along. And that's basically what he says next, beginning in verse 10. He says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, by which you're free in their instance, to eat food offered to idols without defiling yourself, doing what? Eating in an idol's temple. Will he... Not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat that food that at least in his mind has truly been offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, or really by your selfish expression of that knowledge, use of that knowledge, this weak person whom you're to value above your rights and freedoms is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died And thus, in sinning against your brothers, their family to you, he's saying, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, Paul says, you also sin against Christ. Therefore, he will now say of himself, if food makes my brother stumble, well, then I will never eat meat again. 
lest I make my brother stumble, because that is the kind of attitude that a proper understanding of the gospel gives to us. And why is that? Because in Christ, guys, God did not, you know, turn his back on us and our weaknesses and demand his rights in regard to our past and sins. He came to us in our weaknesses and personally took upon himself our sin. And then he paid the price for us, willingly giving up his rights and freedoms by being nailed to a cross. That is a sacrifice of rights, of freedoms, that we might be set free. That's how he's loved us. And that's how he calls us to love each other. And so I think the bottom line on the day is, look, what you're free to do in Jesus or have a right to do, that doesn't, that it shouldn't be what governs your behavior, but rather it's your love for one another. How does this affect these guys over here? Because I can sacrifice rights and freedoms if necessary in love for them. And so that, with that in mind, let me just ask you four questions and we're done. Question number one, what issue, if any, are you trying to construct a theology around that will allow you to continue to do something that you'd like to continue to do or not to do something that you don't want to do? You know, you've decided the answer for God and now you're trying to construct the argument from the Bible around it versus just saying, hey, look, I might be massively inconvenienced by what you might have to say on this, but what do you have to say on this? Because that's the proper posture. Secondly, is your knowledge of the gospel or of God's word or of theology making you more humble or less? More self-sacrificing or less? More loving and caring or less? Is it a platform to serve or a club? Because it's only good theology if it shows up in your life, if it produces in your life the fruit of the Spirit. If If it hasn't done that, then there's still far more for you to learn. Thirdly, what area of your life should you be experiencing freedom in, but instead you're afflicted by a weak conscience? Because the Lord would seek to heal you from that. And what are you doing to appropriate the knowledge of the gospel and to really internalize it in a way that it transforms you and frees you from beating yourself up over your past? For example, just one example. Are you engaging in personal worship? Are you committed to corporate worship? Are you learning to live in the rhythm of grace? Do you need counseling with somebody? What's the next step for you? And then lastly, are you exercising the rights and freedoms that are yours in Christ in such a way as to do damage to one of your Christian brothers and sisters now? Are you doing that? Because Paul would say, no, 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 no. The governing ethic is love. And that would require you to sacrifice your rights and freedoms, even as Christ was sacrificed for you. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us in the Savior. um, That is Christ. Uh, Lord, we are thankful that you do not give us what we deserve, but instead, in Jesus, you received what we deserved for us, that you might give us what he deserves infinite and eternal blessing, Lord. Welcome into your family. Love that is beyond our comprehension. Safety. Security in the ultimate sense. And so then, Lord, we ask that you would take your word even now and begin to work it through our hearts. Help us to see where we are errant in our thinking. Help us to know where we need to be corrected and help us to bring our sin to you and to walk away forgiven not feeling guilty, but feeling your joy. So do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.